gentlemen, and welcome to Francis Watch on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and this evening, as usual, I had the privilege of sharing the company of His Excellency, Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, as well as Father Anthony Chicada, Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency and Father, thanks for being with us again. Thank Hello. Thank you for having me. And also making a cameo appearance on tonight's show, my good colleague Stephen Heiner, who has pressed pause on his world travels to be with us. Stephen, thanks for being here. Uh, always an honor to be here. Francis Watch is sponsored by Novus Ordo Watch. Are you wondering what has happened to the Roman Catholic Church? Are you confused, shocked, or alarmed at what Francis has been saying recently? Then log on to NovusOrdoWatch.org for traditional Catholic news and information with insightful commentary and razor-sharp analysis. Since 2002, Novus Ordo Watch has been exposing the Vatican II Church and its false popes by comparing and contrasting their new religion with the true religion, the modernist Novus Ordo teachings with the teachings of the Catholic Church. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org, that's NovusOrdoWatch.org, to see why Francis is not a true pope and how the modernist Vatican II sect differs from the Catholic Church. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. Restoration Radio programs, including this one, are available on RestorationRadioNetwork.com and are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. You can follow the work of True Restoration on various social media channels like Facebook and Twitter. You can find us by using the social buttons on TrueRestoration.org. On that site, you'll also find a link to Trad Circle, the social network founded in 2008 by Father Anthony Chicada and currently moderated by True Restoration staff. One of its original purposes was to enable young people who feel called to marriage to meet like-minded types but it is also a great and safe place to make new friends and have discussions. People of all ages are welcome. Well, Your Excellency and Father and Stephen, uh, we have a big show here this evening talking about the, um, the canonizations that happened last month on the 27th of April, and particularly our subject of interest tonight is John the 23rd, known as Angelo Roncalli. Um, this is going to be a fascinating topic because we, we really don't... People tend to not understand much about John the 23rd um, because it's sort of shadowed by John Paul II. So we're going to devote quite a bit of time tonight to, to uh, talking about this. So I'm going to let Stephen, uh, who's our guest host, lead us off with the first question. Stephen? If you do have questions tonight, uh, with, if you're calling, to please make sure that it's on topic. We know that people would always like to call in and ask His Excellency and Father for, um, for their opinion on different matters, but tonight we really want to stay on topic with John the 23rd and the canonization. Um, so the, the telephone number, if you'd like to, to call in, is 949-272-9417. Again, that's 949-272-9417. You might have to hold for a while because we're not going to start taking calls for a while, but if you want to call in and get in the queue, you're, you're welcome to do that. Your, your Excellency, when we look at John the 23rd, being born in 1881 and and having his uh, so-called reign uh, far before Justin and I were born, we think about the fact that the John Paul II is is the the claimant that dominated our lives. And John the 23rd wasn't around for very long. Um, just but he he had a very significant aspect. He, I mean, his name is in John Paul's name. If we go back to his, uh, his start, uh, he was the fourth of 14 um, children um, born in, in Lombardy in 1881. If we fast forward through his childhood, we have to imagine he had a, a regular Catholic upbringing like, like all of these claimants have had. But um, 
when we get to his seminary life and his priesthood, that's, I think, where, where we see some challenges. And um, it probably starts with his mentors and, and what he's learning. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, well, he, in the seminary, ended up as a roommate and a walking companion with a certain Ernesto Bonayuti. Uh, apparently, he you well. What they used to do for a walking companion is that you you know picked a lottery and you would get anybody in the class and then you would walk with that person in recreations. To me, it's a little odd given um, Roncalli's background and his whole career that he just happened to get friendly with a someone who would end up an impenitent excommunicated modernist uh, and who was uh, reading all of the wrong stuff and this is at the turn of the century late 1890s early 1900s and connected to all of the wrong people uh, a, a thoroughgoing modernist even as a seminarian this person would end up as his assistant priest at his either his ordination or his um, his first mass I can't remember then he becomes friendly with another person who was cited for modernism, Turki, who also ended up as his assistant, either at his, one was an assistant at his first mass, the other at his, at his ordination. And um, the, uh, uh, the, um, the, you know, you can see right away that he was attracted to this current of modernism even before his ordination. Uh, and the, the, this was something becoming fashionable in the Catholic Church, uh, the, especially 1880s, 1890s, uh, modernism, particularly in the areas of church history and scripture. Uh, it just uh, was on the rise. And uh, the idea of modernism was that the, the church cannot survive the modern era unless it somehow compromises with it. That with all of the research done by modern scholarship, the church has to come to terms with these things if it's going to hope to survive and not be extinguished. That, that was the mentality of the modernists. Uh, and uh, it, it, uh, there were many prelates who were of modernist tendency, and who favored modernism. They were called the modernizers. And this is what Pius X addressed in his pontificate, and in 1907 came down very, very uh, hard uh, uh, on it. Uh, he, um, uh, you know, he said that, you know, that his duty as pastor of the whole church required him to do this, and he set up an organization to repress modernism and modernists, pull them out of, of situations of influence, and to to actually, in certain cases, excommunicate them. Uh, this was the, the atmosphere of the time. So you had uh, a kind of liberal conservative thing, but uh, you know, in these seminaries and institutions, it, it was a uh, uh, something that was growing and very present in the church and among intellectuals. And Roncalli was already a part of that, even as a seminarian. So he starts off very badly. How he became infected from what we must consider to be a, an ordinary pious Italian family, how he became infected with this, we don't know. Uh, but he did. 
uh, and uh, so uh, that, that's you know his beginnings are very very bad. Well, you're saying that he wouldn't have been a good student at most Holy Trinity Seminary, I guess. <laughs> uh, no. He was, uh, he was sneaking he, he, off to the library and reading all those books in the hell section, which I've seen back there. <laughs> I think uh, he would have liked the refectory, though. <laughs> no, <laughs> no I, I recently tweeted that the biggest miracle of John the Twenty Third is that he ever got ordained in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know that that and really it's sad that such a person did get ordained, and that's a whole other perhaps show to do is how modernism got those roots in the latter part of the 19th century and how it got so much momentum in the latter part of the 19th century so that it was necessary for Pius X to come down upon it so hard and how it infected even members of the higher clergy. That's a whole other show but we won't do that tonight. <laughs> and the, the whole career of, of uh, John the 23rd and, and uh, it's, uh, how it started up is uh, absolutely fascinating because, of course, those of us who lived through Vatican II and then through the awful effects of uh, Vatican II and then who ended up as traditional Catholics naturally uh, suspected that he was a modernist, he had modernist uh, uh, tendencies, um, that at, at some point he became involved in the movement, but it's a real eye-opener to realize that he wasn't a later convert. He was in, uh, you know, from the beginning with some, some very bad people. Uh, I don't know if... if um, his Excellency uh, mentioned this specifically, but uh, Borne Uti, I believe, uh, his, his walking companion, was excommunicated by name, wasn't he, by, by Pius X? Borne Uti was the uh, the Vitandus. Uh, Vitandus, uh, yeah. Excommunicated by Pius X. Uh, Vitandus is the worst form of excommunication. It means that everyone must avoid you and that, that you are totally removed from the church and that uh, even if you should walk into a, a, a liturgical service, a mass, that they must stop the mass until you leave. Uh, and uh, it was very strict. Uh, and, uh, and he died impenitent in 1943, uh, this Bonayuti. So he was a hardened modernist. The fact that uh, Roncalli could be friends, uh, there's an old saying, show me your friends and I'll tell you what you are. Uh, that he would find friendship in such a man, I think, is already very illustrative. Uh, yeah, there is a perception of John the Twenty-Third as, oh, you know, good Pope John, and he wanted to maybe soften up things in the church and be a little bit more open, and uh, you know, a, a sort of change from the the very aristocratic Pius the Twelfth and perhaps you know very strict Pius the Twelfth. That's the perception. Uh, but that he was basically a good uh, bishop and a, a you know somebody who meant well certainly uh, that's the perception. And then he wrote that journal of a soul, which contains some very edifying things in it. Uh, you know uh, his his spiritual life, uh, you know his his sort of diary of his own spiritual life. If you would read that, you would say, well, there's some edifying things in this. Uh, you know he doesn't come off as a modernist in that book. But so he has. There's a perception of him that is, uh, it is, um, you know, something uh, not as as bad as what it really is. 
He also, uh, you know, wore the tiara. He was quite observant of uh, all of the rules of dress uh, and and uh, what the uh, liturgical things. I mean, he he, uh, he did everything right. Uh, in, in, in he wasn't like a you know a Bergoglio in that sense. He he put on a good show uh, as. As a as a false pope, <laughs> but you know he more than even Ratzinger or anybody, he he uh, he had a sense of history. He was a student of church history, so he you know he knew a lot of things. Uh, so he, he you know he has a perception among people that uh, most do not appreciate. Now I lived under him. I was eight years old when he became uh, uh, false pope, and the uh, you know I remember the whole change starting. Uh, uh, as uh, and uh, already was disturbed by it at that time. Uh, nothing like I am now, but I knew something was was off uh, at that time. So, uh, but those who have, did not know him, you know, where he's just simply somebody in the past, like Pius XI or something. Uh, the the perception is uh, is different from the reality. Well, Your Excellency, I think you hit the nail on the head because you know people my age and Stephen's age. I mean, you know, he's definitely in the past, and he's he's intrinsically linked to this whole mess that we're in right now. So it, this this show's going to be educational for me tonight because, you know, like I led the show with, it seems like he sort of gets a free pass from a lot of those who would call themselves traditional. Um, you know, oh well, you know, he meant well, he was a nice guy, and it, it, you know, things things just got out of control, and and you know, he never meant this to happen, and on and on. So I'm I'm glad to hear this that you know we can actually find out who this man was so all right so tell us a little about this bishop uh radini tedeschi who was the bishop of bergamo um and he was uh, sort of you know ron Colley's mentor tell us about him well he was the classic modernizer uh, he was uh, a modernizer was a was a prelate and there were quite a few big ones uh who thought that uh, the modernists had something to say and that they favored all of the new scholarship, what you'd call the new theology of the time, which was mostly biblical and historical scholarship. Uh, and uh, he uh, was uh, just very typical of that time. Uh, you, you have uh, Bonomelli, uh, Della Chiesa, who was later Benedict XV, uh, to a certain extent, Ferrari of Milan, who was uh, very much a modernizer, Cardinal Mercier of of um, Malin, uh, the uh, number of other uh, Italian prelates who were modernizers, Maffi, um, the um, uh, and they they favored the modernists. They 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 knew of this uh, movement to renew, as they say, the church. There was actually a publication that they. They didn't put it out in Italy, but they put out in, in Switzerland called Rinnovamento, which means renewal. And if you recall, that was the oh, you don't recall, you're too young. But when I was uh, uh, you know uh, very young, I remember this was the, the catchword, renewal. Everything was renewal uh, in Vatican II. Uh, it was a very early word. The two words uh, that were spread around were renewal and aggiornamento, which means updating. Uh, Father Chikata is old enough to remember that. <laughs> and those are the words you always heard, aggiornamento and renewal. And renovamento, which was the title of this 
leftist magazine uh, from the church's point of view, uh, this modernist magazine that these people put out uh, became the, the catchword of Vatican II. So Vatican II was the victory of all of these people who were calling for major changes in the Catholic Church uh, and a, 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 a conformity or conforming of the Catholic Church to modern ideas and, and modern principles. Uh, and Radini Tedeschi is just like the perfect specimen and perhaps the most radical of them. Uh, and uh, so he had that reputation in the Italian episcopate. So, you know, Roncalli's close association with Radini Tedeschi is like, oh, how would you, you know, it's, uh, it, you could not be associated with a worse person than Radini Tedeschi. Uh, uh, you know that that name for any student of the modernist era it just sets off red lights and bells. Radini said that. Can we can we update it by saying Your Excellency would be it would be like having Cardinal Casper as your mentor these days? Yes. Or he Mueller. The, yes. Uh, you know he he was the the leader of the of the modernizers uh, of the time. They all knew each other. Uh, they they all suffered under Pius. Uh, Tenth, quote unquote, you know they, uh, they, uh, they but uh, he was, you know, the leader of them at least ideologically. He was the most bold among them too, Radini Tedeschi. Uh, I mean, you could do a whole show probably on Radini Tedeschi, but so you know, Roncalli's association with him is is fatal, uh, and Radini Tedeschi will protect him and promote him, uh, and uh, it was in his seminary in Radini Tedeschi's seminary, that Duchenne was uh, read, even though Duchenne was on the index, placed on the index by Pius X, uh, the, the church historian Duchenne was read and used, uh, and this was in defiance of, of the Roman pontiff. The, the, they would not even permit Duchenne in the hell section. You could not even make reference. You could not, you know, with permission, get Duchenne. Uh, you you had, to, had to be eliminated from the library. We, we, had, the uh, we better explain to uh, the listeners what the hell section <laughs> what is. What the hell section is. is yeah. yes. The hell section of any seminary library is a section that is under lock and key, which contains uh, works of the enemies of the church uh, of various types, uh, whether Freemasons or modernist theologians or, or philosophers, anti-Catholic philosophers, because uh, on the one hand, you don't want to put something up whereby people might think uh, this is an approved book to read. On the other hand, your seminarians have to learn the enemy. They, they have to know the enemy uh, in order to respond to them. So there has to be a section which is known as hell. Uh, in which these works are kept, and uh, but that they were actually banned even from uh, reference in the library, uh, the works of Duchenne, and so the now John the twenty third said, to Cardinal Delay under oath, I never even read Duchenne. That's what he said in nineteen fourteen. Cardinal Delay. I do not know the man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's just so hard to believe because Duchenne was so uh, spread about in that diocese that, uh, you know, it just was impossible to believe he was the professor of church history. <laughs> and he said, oh, I never even read him. <laughs> you know, it, it just, uh, even Hebelway said it was groveling. 
uh, and he's his mo- most charitable, uh, one of his most charitable biographers. You know, he called it groveling. Now, that means, I mean, I take that to mean that, it, in fact, it was not true, but he had to excuse himself in front of the church authorities. Because it, it, if it were believable that it were not true, that, you know, if, if, in fact, he never even touched Duchenne, I think uh, Hebelweis would have said that. Sure. Well, I'm just, uh, Your Excellency, I'm just struggling to think of, you know, what is metaphysically not in the hell section. I mean, hell, the hell section is bad enough, but it's not even permitted in the hell section. <laughs> I mean, you, you've, got to, you've got to be pretty bad. Well, I never um, read Duchenne either, so, uh, <laughs> you know, but he was a typical modernist historian, uh, the uh, taking out of church history anything supernatural. And uh, what they did to sacred scripture as well. That if, if it's any supernatural event, well, you know, the weather was bad that day. Like the way they described the opening of the Red Sea was, uh, well, it was a swamp and the wind blew, and that, you know, made this path through the swamp. See, that's the opening of the Red Sea, which is just a lot of nonsense and garbage. Uh, Unbelievable. And, uh, if, you, if you read the, the text the, in Genesis, I mean, it's just that we're supposed to believe that. Their explanation we're supposed to believe, we're, we're not meant to believe what's said in Genesis. Uh, and so they have all of these crazy explanations of what happened in the Gospels and, and in the Old Testament. And uh, they, uh, it, it is based upon, ultimately, an atheism. Now, if, if God is God, he can do whatever he wants, and he can change nature as he pleases. Why is that a problem? Why, why is it difficult to accept that he parted the waters of the Red Sea? Uh, what, what's your problem with that? Your problem is that you don't believe in God. And so you are trying to transform Christianity into some sort of a um, you know, cultural, humanistic uh, way of transforming the world into a better place. Uh, and that, that's what the modernists had in mind. These people have no faith. They are devoid of faith, and the idea was, let's take the institution of the Catholic Church and change it into some sort of institution for the betterment of humanity. And that's exactly what they've done. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, John Twenty-Third was the triumph of the modernists, the modernizers, and modernism in the Catholic Church. Uh, uh, he's pivotal. The, the thing that uh, I found interesting when uh, reading... The whole history of the life of John the Twenty Third that uh, Don Rocosa put together so many years ago, where he he traced this, is that it's it's uh, a type of um, uh, apostolic succession in the or maybe apostolic uh, in the sense of apostasy, <laughs> uh, uh, apostatic succession, for, uh, where he is he is the uh, person John the Twenty Third who ends up in effect. Um, Carrying the uh, modernist succession uh, down to the 1960s, yes, uh, and it's 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 uh, embodied in him. And the idea that there's talk about a hermeneutic of continuity, I mean, he uh, he went through all of these these uh, different eras, and then managed to um, in the 60s pull off. Uh, setting off exactly the type of re- uh, revolution that uh, the classic modernists of uh, whom he knew uh, wanted to set off. It's a fairly astounding thing. 
Yes. But it, 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 it demonstrates, uh, if anything, the need to be absolutely ruthless when it comes to the modernist heresy. Yes. Um, the, uh, under Pius X, the, the, all of the modernists submerged. Either they, were, had, they had their heads chopped off, or they submerged. But with Benedict XV, that all changed. And that permitted a John the Twenty Third and many like him to develop and to uh, eventually accede to places of authority in the church. Well, Your Excellency, um, yeah, we talked a little bit pre-show about this, about this concept of modernist versus modernizer, and I kind of want to talk a little bit about that real quick. Uh, and uh, you know, this this sort of ties into the subject we're talking about about those who he kept company with. That is, you know, John the Twenty Third. And uh, I found a name that I can actually pronounce, Cardinal Ferrari. <laughs> so yes. I wanted it's to, the same family, to, by the way. To, it's the same family as the automobile. <laughs> really? Yes. Interesting. Just well, as Cardinal well, Martini is the same family as the drink. Huh. Really? And now deceased Cardinal Martini, uh, he, uh, yes, who we, we suspected was the glory of the olive. Yeah, uh, <laughs> now that I have to give that to Father Chicada, though that's one of his jokes. Uh, you know, I can't claim that one, but uh, but Martini was uh, was uh, connected to that family. <clears throat> but anyway, go ahead. So so let's let's talk a little bit about Cardinal Ferrari here, and and uh, you know you were saying that you know he was not. He was not your Ron Colley's spiritual director, but but he consulted him on a lot of important decisions. So let's maybe you can talk to us about this concept of being a modernizer. Yes. It, now it, it you know a definition uh, it it defies definition. It's an attitude. Uh, so uh, a modernist has a definition that he's someone that believes that uh, does not believe in Catholic dogma, but believes that. Uh, God is in everybody, and that he expresses himself in various ways, in various peoples, and that dogma is something that emerges in various religions as an expression of the religious experience. That is a textbook modernist, and then all of the rest flows from that principle. But a modernizer is somebody who professes the Catholic faith, uh, uh, acts like a Catholic, but who is interested uh, in and a promoter of the modernists. So they are, uh, like Cardinal uh, Mercier invited Baudouin, who, you know, is just like a a serpent uh, (laughs) in the history of modernism, into his diocese and, uh, uh, you know, to set up a monastery, uh, an ecumenical monastery, or a monastery uh, committed to ecumenism, uh, he's the one that said uh, toward the end of Pius XII's reign, what we need is a, to elect a pope that will consecrate ecumenism. Say so Baudouin, he was the one that uh, devised the idea of the Catholic Church extending, or excuse me, the Church of Christ extending beyond the uh, limits of the Catholic Church. This in the 1930s, that the mystical body is something that goes beyond the limits of the Catholic Church. He was the one that uh, devised the idea of liturgy as a way of uh, passing modernism, in other words, to, to modernize the people through liturgy. Uh, that was Baudouin. I mean, he was just a snake. That's the only way I can put it. He was enshrined in, in, in Mercier's uh, diocese. Uh, that's an example of a modernizer. 
uh, as somebody who, uh, and now Cardinal Mercy, on the other hand, wrote a book against modernism. See, they, they uh, and concerning, uh, an interesting story concerning Mercier, uh, who has, a, by the way, a very good reputation historically because of World War One and various other things. Uh, the, uh, but uh, uh, Monsignor Benigni was the head of the Sodalitium Pianum, and he had sort of a, um, a, a checklist in 19... Now, oh, I should explain. Sodalitium Pianum was the uh, agency set up by Pius X to root out modernists in, throughout the world. It was like a spy agency. Uh, people would report to the Sodalitium. You know, a certain seminary professor said this or did that. The Secret and then, Service. Yes, uh, and then uh, he would be in some way removed or changed around, or things would happen. And they rep- uh, Benigni reported directly to Cardinal Delay, who was very powerful in the uh, Pius X's Curia, and uh, and had very much the favor of Pius X. Saint Pius X was very very hard in the practical order upon the modernists, and was criticized for being so by Cardinal Mary Duval, of all people, who was no modernist, but he thought that St. Pius X was too hard. But St. Pius X insisted on the hard line. So this Monsignor Benigni, who is the head of the Sodalitium Pianum, has a list of the, the voting cardinals for the next conclave. He made it in 1913. On it is Cardinal Mercier. And his comment is, among the worst enemies of the Church. Which I thought Be, because of what he tolerated, correct? Yes, yes. Not because you know, there's no heresy. Not because that of you his can... teaching, but because of what he tolerated. Yes, and so you had a number of these people throughout Europe, particularly. You had them also in this country, like Bishop Ireland, uh, uh, who was very, very liberal. Uh, I'm surprised that he even survived the the reign of Pius X. Uh, th- there was a a system before the council where you practically never removed a bishop. You know, you, you would pray for his death, or you, you, you know, they had this idea that you don't remove a bishop. Pius X, it is said, was very close to removing Ferrari uh, and Radini Tedeschi. That you know, he just had had it with them, but he never did. Uh, Gibbons was, uh, you know, in this country, not so much modernist, but Americanist, which is very close to modernism, a tendency, uh, various others in this country, but especially Europe. Europe had a lot of of modernizers. Uh, And uh, so uh, that's the, the, the modernizers did more damage than the modernists. You know, modernists, they're known for their modernism. They, they, they turn into ecclesiastical trash uh, very quickly. They're they're known as radicals, and uh, you know the average Catholic is not going to pay attention to him. But the modernizers, that is, these people in the positions of authority that are fanning the flames of modernism by either tolerance or outright promotion, without actually espousing themselves the heresy, uh, are far more dangerous. And 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 Radini Tedeschi and Ferrari were among them, and so and also Mercier. Uh, there are others. Well, uh, with that with that phrase, ecclesiastical trash. Uh, for those of you just joining us, you are listening to Francis Watch, 
episode five on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, co-hosting with the regular host, Justin Soder. Um, that voice you just heard was His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. We're joined uh, by the comedic talents of Father Anthony Chicada, um, Associate Pastor of uh, St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Um, I, now, I just want to say something here. Father Chicada always gets the prize for the funny comments. I think there should be another what? prize for outrageous comments. <laughs> and and I, I think once in a while I would probably win that prize. Mm. <laughs> I think so as well. well yes. <laughs> you, you had the you had the uh, the Cardinal Casper joke a couple episodes ago, your Excellency, where you said it might have been ghost written, and you know, there are a couple of us who laughed who, who laughed out loud when you when you said that. There are a couple of us got that. It's it, 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 it's not your efforts are not unappreciated. Um, well, I would never consider re- Father Jakarta on the comedy scene. <laughs> We, we want to remind you that uh, Francis Watch and all the jokes contained herein are a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. And if you do tell one of Father Chicada's jokes, make sure to attribute it properly. <laughs> if you are listening to our show in iTunes or Stitcher, please make sure to leave us ratings and reviews. It helps those who are looking for truly Catholic programming to more easily find our work. Your Excellency, I want to circle back to something that you um, started the show with. You said, you know, show me a man's friend, and I'll show you that person's character. For some reason or another, Roncalli is able to associate with these vile characters, but get the approval of all of the reigning popes. He gets approval from Benedict XV. He gets approval from Pius uh, Pius XI. He just keeps moving up the church ranks. Um, what do you attribute this to? I mean, was the man just a, you know one of these skillful politicians, smiles, he can glad hand and get promoted? Uh, or, or can we blame Benedict XV? Can we blame Pius XI? Can we blame Pius XII? Um, what, what's going on there? Well, again, that would really be an excellent show to do, uh, but I'll be brief. The Pius X understood completely the dangers of modernism and knew that if modernism were not repressed and suppressed and modernists taken out of institutions and places of authority... Uh, that this would happen in the church. He made certain comments. You know, if they ever, it's in Pashendi. I mean, they'll just wreck the church essentially. He understood that perfectly. He was a saint, and um, uh, he put down. He said in the in the dioceses there should be diocesan vigilance committees that make sure that the spread of modernism does not take place, and which was you know a nice term essentially for the Inquisition. He didn't use the term Inquisition, but a diocesan vigilance committee means essentially a, a branch of the Sodalitium Pianum, uh, which would keep track of people who were saying modernist things. That's in Pascendi. It's at the yes. end of Pascendi. And, and in the 1914 conclave, when he died in August of 1914, the conclave got together and it was filled, or at least highly populated, with people who had, quote-unquote, suffered under Pius X and this whole system of what they called repression and, and severity and wanted a change. And the, the man that was uh, the, of the Pius X party was Mary Del Val. Now, 
he didn't stand a chance. Uh, he, uh, he was too young for one reason, but also there were a lot of these European cardinals that wanted to see a change with regard to modernism. And so they elect Della Chiesa, who became Benedict XV. The, uh, one of the, the, practically the first thing that Benedict XV did was to strip the Sodalitium Pianum of all of its powers. He did not suppress it, but he, he, he made it virtually impotent. And uh, he changed the whole attitude toward the modernists. He, there was a, a whole new atmosphere toward the modernists, whereby they, you know, the, all the tactics of what they called repression, we would call prosecution of crimes. I would, you know, ecclesiastical crimes would be the way I would put it. But what they called repression uh, changed, you see. Then, so the modernists, surfaced. And so in 1914, uh, uh, Roncalli was cited by Delay for suspicion of modernism, and it was in his file. Uh, That was in the early part of 1914. Uh, By 1925, Roncalli is being consecrated a bishop in, in San Carlo in Corso in Rome. And he's, uh, and this is already under Pius XI. Uh, so the, I mean, in a nutshell, those three pontificates of Benedict XV, Pius XI, and Pius XII failed to take the warnings of Pius X seriously. And through a certain weakness of character or uh, whatever you want to attribute it to, I, I, I wouldn't say modernism, there's no trace of modernism in them, but they... Uh, they had a weakness and softness toward the modernists which permitted the modernists to rise up into places of authority. Karl Marx said, patience is the virtue of revolution. And that's, the modernists had that, they understood that. Patience is the virtue of revolution. They understood by, that by playing the waiting game, they would eventually prevail. And the, the pontificates, those three pontificates, as glorious as they were in many respects, nevertheless saw the success of the rise of modernists in many seas. I mean, Roncalli is just one example. Look at Montini. Yeah. I mean, Roncalli's career looks like, you know, <laughs> like, like nothing in comparison to the career of Montini, who was saying mass facing the people in in Milan as a young priest in the 1920s. And and he was cited for that. I mean, his career is just absolutely abominable uh, right from the day he was born. Uh, His family was liberal, and everything about him was bad. And by the way, Roncalli was very, very tight with Montini. And Roncalli said on his deathbed, you must elect Montini. He is the only one that will go ahead with the council. And one of the hmm. first things that, Ma- that Roncalli did was to make Montini a cardinal because Pius XII had passed him up because of, that's a whole other story, but uh, Pius XII ba- banished him from the Vatican and made him uh, Archbishop of Milan. Well, uh, one uh, <coughs> one uh, point to reinforce what uh, His Excellency said has to do with... Um, Pius the Twelfth, um, <clears throat> you see in him uh, impeccable doctrine, but uh, 
you see like a failure of, of, of uh, nerve uh, when it comes to really wanting to repress heresy. You had the um, movement, the theological movement, which um, was called the New Theology that arose in, in France. And uh, in effect, uh, it was the, the theologians who wanted to continue in theology the modernist program and to bring the modernist program forward. And now the historians of theology in the 20th century say very clearly that, in fact, they were the, the heirs of, of, um, uh, of modernism. Well, uh, Pius XII uh, and the Holy Office under Cardinal Ottaviani uh, silenced some of these people. And um, Pius XII, uh, 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 Pius XII wrote Humani Generis, which condemned the uh, errors of uh, the new theology. But uh, he really wasn't sufficiently brutal in uh, repressing these people. Uh, they were simply silenced. Uh, they were allowed to remain in good standing and so on. And they were the modernist theologians who reemerged to give us Vatican II. And it, it was because... Pius, not only because of their patience, but uh, in the case of these men, Pius XII was insufficiently brutal, uh, as he should have been in dealing with these heretics, in uh, suppressing them. They should have been cashiered and um, excommunicated, and that's it. But um, uh, instead, there was the, this he hesitancy uh, to do that. There's the famous case of Teilhard de Chardin, who was an evolutionist and, you know, pantheist, everything wrong with him. And, and uh, Cardinal Ottaviani begged Pius XII to permit him to excommunicate him. And Pius XII said no, that if we are kind to him and we, are, uh, you know, we, we go slowly and softly with him, essentially, he'll come around. That's a perfect case in point. Also, Ratzinger, for example, who said outrageous things, as a theologian in the 50s, got a monitum uh, from the Holy Office, uh, together with some other uh, avant-garde theologians, and nothing ever came of it. A monitum is a, a warning. Now, you should, you know, they should have acted much more uh, effectively and, and uh, strongly against the, the new theology, but they, they didn't. That was fatal to the Church, absolutely fatal. Uh, it has given us this problem. It, you know, if, what is the cause of this problem? It is the negligence of those three pontificates: Benedict XV, Pius XI, Pius XII. That is the cause of Vatican II. And and I should add that Ratzinger is featured in the Hell section at Most Holy Trinity. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> we just got uh, 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 two new bookcases for the Hell section. We had to expand it actually. <laughs> So the seminarians ask uh, if they can go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Your Excellency, you mentioned that uh, Montini was among the 23 new cardinals named by, by uh, Roncalli, which is one of the first acts of his uh, non-pontificate. Um, so we, let's come on to that. You, you, we're looking at, at his, as his uh, time of claimancy. I suppose, why don't we look at, uh, I guess I want to look at two things. One, the sort of cryptic, uh, you know, he chose for his Episcopal motto, obedience and peace. I suppose we could go into a whole tangent there if you'd like. 
the other uh, thought I'd like you to start with is John the 23rd, for, for people who don't know who, there was another John the 23rd in church history, why this is an unfortunate name at best for a new pope. Yes, uh, there, were, uh, there was the Great Western Schism, uh, which took place after the, um, Urban V returned to, uh, to Rome. Uh, excuse me, the, uh, no, the, the, it wasn't Urban V. The, the Pope uh, before him um, returned to Rome, and then there was the election of Urban V in Rome, and uh, the, uh, everything was fine for six months until the, uh, because well, you should understand that the papacy had been for about 70 years in Avignon in France because Rome became uninhabitable because of the uprisings of the Roman mob. And so the popes just had it and decided to go to France where it was peaceful and, and they had under the protection of the French monarch. So uh, that was a mistake, of course, but they did it. And uh, so for 70 years it was in, in France, and finally through the, the workings of uh, St. Catherine of Siena, she convinced the pope to return to Rome. So Urban the fifth was elected, uh, and the the cardinals from France and Spain and all took part in the election. And I'm sorry, everything I was, think it's Urban. I think it was Urban the sixth. It was Urban the sixth. Okay. Uh, er, yes. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, and uh, he um, for six months nothing happened, but because he wanted to introduce reforms into the soft living of the cardinals because the Avignon court was corrupt in that way. It was a lot of soft living and worldly living. Because Are you saying there's soft living in France, Your Excellency? <laughs> <laughs> it was a worldly place. The Avignon papal court was a worldly place. Uh, uh, and uh, so he started to institute reforms. And... Uh, well, the the Avignon cardinals didn't care for that too much. The French cardinals and all, uh, they were used to an easier life, and so they said, "Oh, we have a crisis of conscience." The Roman mob was so intent upon having a Roman elected as a pope that we were pressured into voting for this man. You know, he really is not the true Roman pontiff. That election was invalid, and the you know crisis of conscience. Uh, something like Henry VIII's crisis of conscience about Catherine of Aragon. Oh, she may not be my wife. Meanwhile, while he's courting the young Anne Boleyn, the, so you know, so they have this crisis of conscience, and so they go and elect a a pope in Avignon in France. So there's two popes, and uh, Christendom is split: Spain and France, essentially, with the Avignon pope. The rest of Europe with the with the other pope. Uh, so, you know, life went on like this, and it was very confusing. So there was a, a, a third conclave called in Pisa, and this conclave, in an attempt to uh, fix the situation by getting the other two to resign, uh, proposed a John the Twenty Third as as the Pisa Pope who would, you know, uh, you know, with the idea that he would be the, the true Pope if the others resigned. Well, the others did not resign. So there were three popes. <laughs> and uh, so for a time there were three popes. Finally, that was all resolved by the Council of Constance. 
and Martin V became the, the, the single recognized pope. Uh, and so that that John XXIII was because that that it was never settled historically whether he was validly elected or not because it's quite complicated. Uh, the uh, no one ever took the name John XXIII uh, until Roncalli came along and took the name John XXIII to effectively settle that the Pisa John XXIII was not in fact the true pope, which. All historians recognize now. Uh, the the irony of it, however, is that he managed <laughs> not to be a true pope another, either. I think you're going to say for for reasons of uh, that are far worse than a, a bad election, and that is for this intention to uh, bring the church into conformity with the modern world. That's a far greater reason not to be a pope than an election problem. And so that's uh, that's that, that's the so I think what should happen when we finally get a, a you know a true pope that he should take the name of John the Twenty Third. That would say everything. Uh, that would finish it off. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so that's the story of John the Twenty Third. But being a church historian, he purposely did that. That was contribution churches. Well, and and he went right into to calling this council, and the idea of, of calling a council was not so. He put it out. You you mentioned a story, story of a soul, um, journal the, of a soul, his his journal of a soul, something like it, it was his. It was his uh, I haven't read it, but his, you know, I've read parts. It was it it, it 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 was his work, and he mentioned you know that the Holy Spirit inspired him. You know, to call the council, but but this this wasn't the story, was it? The the idea of a council had been talked about for some time before uh, he 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 uh, became a, a claimant to the papacy. Yes, he's quoted as talking about the council in the mid fifties, and it was being discussed even in the nineteen forties that there should be a council to complete Vatican One, because Vatican One had to be interrupted very quickly because of the Franco-Prussian War, the French troops that were defending Rome from the horrid Garibaldi troops uh, were pulled out very quickly, and Garibaldi came in on the 20th of September, 1870, and uh, you know, was pillaging and raping and everything else, and uh, and the Pope had to to uh, uh, he became a prisoner of the Vatican at that point, and uh, so that that is. Uh, uh, why Vatican, the first Vatican Council of 1870 had to break up. And uh, so there was always talk of, you know, we have to complete that work. But Cardinal Ottaviani and other curial cardinals said to Pius XII, don't call a council because it's too dangerous. The, there is too much um, modernism out there, effectively. I don't know if they use that word, but that, that there's too many bad ideas uh, floating around and it could be a very, very dangerous thing. So Pius XII decided not to call the council. But it was a very much discussed point. Uh, and he's quoted as talking about a council. He, he, you know, it, it's clear that he did speak about a council. For him to say that this came to him one day to have a council is, is frankly, a lie. And, but it just gives this mystique to the council, as if this is you know, the great work of the Holy Ghost that 
that we have to you know, change the church to fit the modern world. Uh, the same thing as canonizing John the 23rd and, and John Paul II, it, it is to say that all of this comes with the stamp of approval of the Holy Ghost, you know, as the Catholic Church goes down the tubes every single day. It's all the work of the Holy Ghost. Uh, if you want to look up what His Excellency was talking about, there's an article in the 1989 Trenta Journey by Stefano Pacci and Paolo Biondi. Uh, there's a quote from uh, Cardinal Siri uh, uh, confirming what uh, His Excellency just said, and the quote is, uh, the idea came up at that time, but Pius XII never talked to me about it, the, the idea being a council, even though we were very close. I was told that he had said that at least 20 years would be needed to prepare a council. That's why I will not call it my bill. And he was right because the council was convened by John the 23rd. The one who suggested it to him, or at least reminded him about it, Cardinal Ruffini, on December the 16th, 1958, two months after his election. The Pope was enthusiastic and agreed, but the idea of holding a council was already circulating. Pius XII had set up a small commission to study the proposal quietly. It was an idea that was maturing. That, that uh, what Cardinal Siri said was uh, <clears throat> confirmed that uh, was confirmed as well from another source. Uh, Bishop Sanborn already mentioned uh, this dumb uh, Lambert Baudouin, who was a, uh, uh, a classic modernist who ended up being very influential in the uh, change of the Catholic liturgy and in the liturgical movement and in ecumenism. And he was a, uh, a friend of, of Ron Colley, personal friend of Ron Colley, and Ron Colley uh, supported him, and he, Ron Colley met with him when, uh, he, when Ron Colley was the apostolic nuncio to, uh, to France. So they, they were on very good terms. Uh, when Pius Twelfth died, uh, Baudouin is, is recorded to have said by his um, uh, biographer, that the cardinals don't know what to do, uh, that is to say, whom to elect. Uh, if they elect Ron Colley, he is capable of calling a council to consecrate ecumenism. Mm -hmm. Very significant because it, it uh, tells you that the bad guys um, had precisely this idea in mind of, of uh, calling a, a council to overturn things. Yes. Yes. Uh, by the way, there's a little anecdote on Roncalli's coat of arms. Uh, he was from Venice, and Venice, as you perhaps know, has the lion as its insignia. Mm -hmm. And so they devised the coat of arms of Roncalli with the lion of Venice at the top. And Roncalli intervened and said, the lion looks too nasty. I would like you to make him look a little nicer. And, and so they put a little smile on the on the lion's face, and you can see that today. If you look at Roncalli's, uh, you, if you look at the Venetian lion, he's he's plenty nasty. No. And the one that's on Pius X's coat of arms too, he's plenty nasty. But the the one on John the Twenty Third has a little smile on his face, like a pussycat. <laughs> uh, and uh, so that's just a little anecdote. But it shows his attitude is one of not defending the doctrine of faith and, and uh, you know, against the modern world, but one of cozying up to the modern world and changing the church to fit the modern world. You know, it's very symbolic. 
Well, and he had to fit the prophecy of St. Malachi. He had to be pastor at Malta. Otherwise, that, that wouldn't have worked. Uh, so you had to have the, uh, the, the, the sailor portion uh, for, for Venice. Sailing um, from Venice, for those, yeah. Right, for those who, uh, who, who need the prophecies of St. Malachi. Um, now, we're, if we're into this non-pontificate, Your Excellency, there are so many things that uh, we could go into. Obviously, we've done uh, at least one show on Vatican II with you, Season 1. If, uh, if people haven't heard that show, it's one of our most listened to episodes of all time. Um, His Excellency was barraged uh, for three hours straight by, by three of us on, on six different documents um, and held up very well. Um, I want to talk about something we didn't talk about in that show, which is the encyclical Pachim and Terris. And I, I guess I want to frame this. Uh, I'll start with Father Jakarta and then come on to you, Your Excellency. The idea of papal encyclicals no longer being reliable, this idea that, you know, when an encyclical would come out, which, which I should add, encyclicals are, are, you know, for the real Catholic nerds. You know, it isn't general reading. And people are like, oh, I can't wait for that new encyclical to come out. Uh, but, but back when they did come out and they were written by reliable popes, they were a joy to read. I think, Your Excellency, you said before, it's almost as if there's only one author, right? Mm-hmm. There's only one author yeah. writing all of these encyclicals, and, and you can feel it in your bones. You know, this is, this is Catholic teaching. Yeah. And this started to change. And I, I suppose I want your personal reflections, Father, and then Your Excellency, when these new encyclicals started to come out, did you, did you feel infected? Did you... Did you sense what was wrong? Um, and why was Pachamenteris particularly dangerous? Well, since, since I was, uh, I had just made my first communion and I was in second grade, uh, <laughs> my Latin wasn't all that good. <laughs> um, it broke slightly, I, I think, recently. I'm old, but not that old. <laughs> the, well, there is, uh, to answer somewhat seriously for a change, uh, there is... Um, this lack of clarity in the modern writing that you uh, did not find in the uh, encyclicals of the pre-Vatican II popes. They actually were readable and were uh, comprehensible, and you knew what they were talking about. They were uh, straight to the point, but the whole style of that uh, changed because uh, because of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, the one has to say something about uh, encyclicals at this point that <clears throat> these were considered very very important documents for uh, Catholics and and for the teaching of the Church. Uh, they were first used, I think, by Benedict XIV. I think he was he was the the first uh, Pope to write um, in what we would now call the encyclical encyclical form as a, uh, a tool of, of uh, teaching doctrine, in effect, uh, to the whole church. Uh, the teaching of an encyclical, even though it, it uh, didn't have the uh, uh, anathema sets um, uh, at the end, uh, condemning as, as heretics those who did not uh, accept the teaching of this encyclical, nevertheless, they were considered to be part of or the universal ordinary magisterium of the church. So it was a very serious document, and it was something that, as uh, a Catholic, you were expected to take seriously and to adhere uh, to its teaching. 
So that's the, those are the, the, the two points that I would make on that, uh, that you have a lack of clarity uh, in the uh, post-Vatican II encyclicals, and that um, when an encyclical is written by a true pope, it's something that uh, you have to take seriously, that you can't blow off and say that, uh, as some traditionalists, unfortunately, uh, uh, tend to do, to say, oh, well, that's only an encyclical. So uh, one has to get both those categories, both those understandings straight, I think. Your Excellency? Yes, I think it was 1961, that encyclical. Um, And my Latin was kind of rusty at the time, too. But, uh, you know, no, we were too young, really, to understand the impact of it. But the... um, uh, it was a pivotal document for for many points of view. Uh, the um, first of all, it opened up the um, uh, the the, the church's attitude towards socialism. Socialism was condemned by the Catholic Church. Uh, the but. Uh, Roncalli was always friendly with socialists and communists. Uh, you know, he uh, he had them into Venice. You know, for their uh, for their uh, their meeting in the 1950s. They, the hammer and sickle was was their uh, insignia, and that was you know he he uh, congratulated them on their their meeting in in Venice. I mean, he was always thick with socialists. Um, and so that was the first thing that was noticed about Pachamenteris was this opening to socialism. Uh, the second was liberalism. There were principles in there that contradicted Gregory the Sixteenth, Pius the Ninth, Leo the Thirteenth concerning relations of church and state. Uh, the uh, a theologian, if he was, uh, uh, I forget what his position was in the Holy Office, but his name was Chappie, a Dominican came to John the 23rd and said this seems you know he he put it in you know nice words but this seems to contradict these popes and you know you might be accused of liberalism on these issues and the uh, attitude uh, expressed by John the 23rd was this he said i i don't if the whole thing uh, if the thing on the whole shines i don't mind if there's a few spots on it that was his response to the objection of the Holy Office. But I think the most uh, significant thing is what he said, that, um, that uh, man <clears throat> uh, has um, a right to uh, honor God according to the dictates of his conscience. Um, and in the Latin phrase that he Put out was ad rectam conscientiae sue normam. That means the right norm of his conscience. The sense of that is according to your good conscience. The, it's significant that the Italian translation that came out was this. Each has a right to honor God according to the dictates of a just conscience. So they switched the adjective from the the word recta, uh, recta was with norm. That means in the Latin, that means a, a good conscience. And in the Italian, for orthodoxy's sake, they switched it to the word conscience, that your conscience had to be right. 
You see, so that had to be in accordance with the teaching of the church, and that's what you have a right to in, in religious matters, to, to profess the, the true faith. Uh, his, his history is one of making conscience or believing in human conscience over dogma. That, uh, that people, uh, which is typically modernist, that good conscience justifies what you do, that it gives you a right to what you do. That is very, very serious because it destroys the very nature of the Catholic Church. And the fact that that appeared in that document, that is the, the that's Vatican II. The, the central um, error of Vatican II is that the dictates of human conscience are superior to the teaching of the Catholic Church. We see that in ecumenism, which is the soul of Vatican II, that you know all religions have a certain value and their means of salvation. Uh, the, we see that in uh, religious liberty, that no one should stop you, that, that you have the right to, to do what is your, whatever your conscience dictates, and that no one can stop you from that, that you should not be impeded from doing what your conscience dictates, uh, and which that cannot be found in the history of the church, in any of the church's moral theology. That you should not be impeded from doing what your conscience dictates. I always use the example of the 9/11 terrorists. You know, according to that, we should have said, "Well, you know, that was their religious conscience. They were following Allah. You know, we could, we can't do anything about that." I mean, that that is such a destructive principle because Catholicism is based on the fact that there is divine revelation, and the Catholic Church is empowered by God by the Spirit of God to teach it infallibly. So the Catholic doctrine is the supreme norm of belief that to which your conscience must conform. But if you dethrone that, if you strip that away from the church and say, well, conscience is the supreme norm, you have Vatican too. And, uh, what, look at Bergoglio. Uh, atheists, uh, if they use their conscience, you know, if they're acting in accordance with their conscience, they can go to heaven. Uh, homosexuals, if they are uh, you know, good people trying to do their best and, and so forth, uh, who am I to judge? Uh, the, uh, the adulterers, you know, that they, they, they feel that they're, they're doing the right thing. This all, it, and all of the ecumenical abominations of, quote-unquote, St. John P, J.P. II, uh, all of those things were done in the name of this principle of conscience, and that is in Pacem and Teres. Uh, it, it is the most destructive doctrine uh, of the Catholic Church. It rips, it just rips the Catholic Church to shreds, and that's why we have what we have. For those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to Francis Watch on the Restoration Radio Network. I am your host this evening, Justin Soder, and I'm joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada, Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. And also joined by my co-host, Stephen Heiner. Uh, today we've been talking about uh, the life of John XXIII, uh, Angelo Roncalli, 
and giving our listeners an in-depth background as to who this modernist really was. We'd like to remind you that Francis Watch is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually very easily be obtained by writing to us at mail at truerestoration.org. We'd also like to thank our show sponsor, Novus Ordo Watch, for helping bring the show to our listeners. Well, Your Excellency, um, Talking more about this, this document, Pachamant Terrace, I mean, there's so many angles we could go at here with this. Um, and the one I want to go at now is this, this, this hat tip and wink uh, towards the United Nations. You know, we, we see in paragraph 145 where he says, It is therefore our earnest wish that the United Nations organization may be able progressively to adapt its structure and methods of operation to the magnitude and nobility of its tasks. May the day be not long delayed when every human being can find in this organization an effective safeguard of his personal rights, those rights, that is, which derive directly from his dignity as a human person, and which are therefore universal, inviolable, and inalienable. So, yeah, but, you know, that's, that's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? It shows his, his, his modernism. He's a modernist. Uh, he is a person that he had the... Uh, um, See, we must, he said, one of his famous quotes, we must first serve mankind before we serve the church. Um, the, the whole idea of the, uh, this goes back to Marc Sagnier, uh, the, uh, the Sion, which was condemned very, very harshly, and rec- rightfully so, by Pius X. The, the idea of saving humanity by human dignity that you don't need the Catholic Church and the Savior, uh, the Christ the King, to save humanity from its problems. Rather, humanity will save itself from its problems by cultivating a type of religion of human dignity. Uh, Woodrow Wilson said it at, uh, in Paris in 1919, because Christianity has failed to provide peace for the world, now we must uh, you know, seek other means of, of, of establishing peace. And of course, you know, he was very successful at establishing peace in 1919. We all, we all know that was a wonderful success. Uh, you know, 50 million people being uh, killed in World War II as a result of that wonderful peace conference. Uh, the, um, but that, that was the idea that, that uh, we have to have a, a different formula for uh, bettering the world, and the Catholic Church has to uh, come into this as a player and contribute to it. And, and the United Nations really becomes the, the, the main event of humanity. Uh, that's the whole spirit of Gaudium et Spes. Gaudium et Spes. That's, that's it. Is that the Catholic Church is enlisted in this new humanism, and the only contribution that the Catholic Church wants to make is that it have a spiritual dimension. Uh, that's very clear in the writings of Paul VI. And it's, yeah, it's uh, a theme that just uh, uh, keeps on being sounded. It was one that certainly we heard all through the uh, 1960s and the 1970s, and then with uh, uh, John Paul II, his his coming as well. Everything was the dignity of the human person this, the dignity of the human person that, yeah. and uh, it, uh, that um, it everything seemed to be. Um, uh, and in fact was turned upside down, that uh, in effect what Paul VI said at the end of Vatican II 
was absolutely true that now, yes, we have the cult of man above yes. all. Yes. And uh, so everything is, is turned on its head. Yes. Well, you're supposed to say, wasn't it Paul VI who, who went to the UN and said they were the last great hope of mankind? Wasn't that, yes. wasn't that Paul VI? Yes. Yeah, yes. that's what I thought. Uh, and Paul VI. That's another show. Is Paul, yeah. Well, yeah. soon to be blessed Paul VI. Believe me, it, you know, uh, he makes John Twenty-Third look like an altar boy. Uh, and uh, the, uh, I mean, you know, he, whew, that's a whole, that'll take two or three shows. <laughs> someone, uh, someone said that um, one of the uh, miracles they would attribute is that uh, finally that one priest uh, preached from a pulpit against birth control. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't think I don't think they'll have to exhume the body to see if it's you know incorrupt or not. I think that's pretty much been solved. <laughs> um, let me pose a follow-up on this, Your Excellency. Why is it that you think that this became such a central theme from you know John the Twenty-Third on this whole United Nations Catholic Church merger here? Why you know why is that? What's what's behind that? Uh, I think that the clergy in general became infected with the modern ideas. I also think that they lost the faith or became very weak in the faith and that they became convinced that the purpose of the church was to make a better humanity. Uh, Like all liberals, they, they think that humanity can perfect itself and will always make the right choice if given two choices. Uh, the uh, uh, it was a loss of faith. Ultimately, it goes back to a loss of faith in in, in a supernatural God. And uh, and you know, sorry to say, but Pius XII also praised the United Nations. Mm-hmm. And you there are there are you know the rumblings already uh, under Pius XII. It's shocking because the United Nations was founded by communists. It was founded by Mrs. Roosevelt, who is one of the most disgusting human beings that ever lived in the 20th century, and then uh, that Alger Hiss was a convicted communist agent. Those are the the, the big movers, prime movers of the United Nations. How, I mean, how any, any ecclesiastic could ever say anything positive about that institution is beyond me. And and its and its uh, its constitutions and its you know all of the its documents its founding documents are full of everything that is contrary to quas primas the the, the reign of Christ in, in society I mean it's totally contrary uh, it, it uh, I, I think uh, you know there has never been a really good biography of Pius XII there's been you know so the, the superficial biographies but. Uh, it would be interesting to see what made that man tick, what was going on in his mind, because he, there are many cases where you can see that he is influenced in his mind by modern ideas. He was not a modernist, but he had some modern ideas floating around in his head. Uh, and uh, I, I just would wait to see one day uh, like a thousand-page biography of Pius XII uh, that really, uh, you know, describes the man. Uh, but, I, I, you know, that explains a lot. That, that you know, that already there was, there was uh, World War II was such a shock to humanity that everyone was in the mood for 
doing something to prevent another world war. Uh, it was just the, the mood of the age. And perhaps uh, there was a certain naivety, and certainly Pius XII was naive, uh, uh, that, uh, you know, human beings coming together would uh, somehow solve their problems. The same thing with the League of Nations, you know, that sitting down and talking about things. But if you see the, I mean, there's nothing wrong with nations talking about their troubles. But when you see the, uh, how they wanted to organize humanity, the United Nations, I mean, it was uh, just something that was wicked and, and iniquitous. Well, you know, you mentioned Your Excellency uh, um, you know, John XXIII's uh, uh, communist contemporaries, and this brings me to a quote that I don't think we can ignore for this show here, which is a quote that, you know, uh, Ron Colley said. He's a quote, Often I find myself more comfortable with an atheist or a communist than with certain fanatical Catholics. I mean, mm-hmm. that speaks volumes. I mean, that, you know, the, sure. if that's a window into the man's mind, I mean, it's certainly wide open, and you can see right there really what his true colors are. He was connected his whole life with leftists. Leftists of every type. I mean, you know, whether ecclesiastical leftists, you know, modernists or modernizers, or political leftists. Definitely. He, I mean, his, his connections, I don't think he has one good connection, let's put it that way. <laughs> you know, he was always on the wrong side of everything. Uh, uh, you know, he, he just, uh, if you really read uh, his biography and all of the uh, incidents in his life, it, it is just one disaster after the other. Yeah. He was, uh, and this openness to communism was very much a part of his uh, non-pontificate, uh, the meeting with Khrushchev and uh, uh, the uh, you know, the Ostpolitik of the Vatican that all started under him. Uh, and socialism, well, no, it, it was, which is actually even worse in a sense, because hooking up the Catholic Church with the socialist movements of Europe is actually more destructive than you know your relationship with Soviet Russia. Uh, the the uh, socialism is something that that. Was condemned by Leo the Thirteenth and ha- and, re- and re- remains condemned, and must be avoided. But yet, you know, the world has gone socialist since World War One. The world has become a socialist place, uh, and uh, so I mean, it, but that was the first time that you had an actual opening to it. Pius the Twelfth, if you remember, uh, excommunicated members of the Communist Party, and you had you could have nothing to do with communists under Pius the Twelfth. Then that was changed under John the Twenty Third. Well, and just to bookend what you were saying, Your Your Excellency, uh, we have uh, Paul the Sixth, soon to be, I sub- as you say, blessed Paul the Sixth. Uh, yeah, soon to be. And um, he he continued his legacy by saying, "The peoples of the earth turn to the United Nations as the last hope of concord and peace." Yeah. Well, surely you know uh, Catholicism or or Christianity doesn't have anything to do with that, but uh, the United Nations. Uh, would be who we would turn well, to. What, what year was that, Stephen? 1965. Uh, that was, uh, the, ex- oh, excuse well, me? Yes, so. it was October 4th, ni- October 4th, 1965. I know that yeah. because I saw him in New York at that time. Hmm. Yes. Well, you would have also got that question right in, in Jeopardy. That was, very, <laughs> that was a very fast answer. I was about to um, say October 4th because I remember it distinctly. Well, it's the Feast of Saint Francis. Francis. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, if you'd like to call in and ask uh, other trivia questions of His Excellency, or ask uh, questions of Father Chicada, 
Uh, you can call in 949-272-9417. Again, that's 949-272-9417. We're well into uh, the second half of our show, so if you'd like to ask, you probably want to call in the next 15 or 20 minutes to do so. Um, you, Your Excellency, your, I, I want to shift ground a little bit because we've been talking about some of these bigger ideas that doctrine and general orientation. I want to I want to look at two specific things that have impacted um, us liturgically, um, and it's something we really haven't talked about too much today. Um, but that is uh, adding Saint Joseph to the canon and the removal of the word perfidious from the Good Friday liturgy. And uh, the 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 retort I always get when you know we bring up the Saint Joseph is well. You, what, what, you don't want St. Joseph to pray for you? And, uh, of course, this is the worst comeback of all time, but, uh, Father, it's a liturgical question, so I'm, I'm going to lead with the, uh, the professor of liturgy at the seminary. Well, uh, yeah, the, there, there actually had been a, a, a movement in the 19th century on the part of some clergy to put the name of St. Joseph in the canon, but uh, it was... Uh, rebuffed by the Holy See because the idea was that in the Roman canon the names that you have are the names of martyrs and uh, of Our Lady of course as the Queen of Martyrs and that's one point. Uh, the other point is that it's, it's uh, uh, something so sacred and fixed that you do not touch it. You, you do not uh, uh, change it. It's so much a part of the, the uh, liturgical uh, tradition, the center of the liturgical tradition of the uh, Roman Catholic Church. Uh, John the Twenty Third, uh, as I recall, in effect um, did this because he uh, got annoyed. He was watching the uh, speeches at Vatican II, and uh, a uh, one of the uh, bishops, I believe, had, had uh, proposed this. And uh, this idea apparently was mocked by some of the uh, other clergy present at the council. So John the Twenty Third decided, on the spur of the moment, that he would issue a degree, decree to introduce the name of Saint Joseph into the canon. So it was not exactly a. It, it, it uh, was something that was done on uh, the spur of the moment. Uh, without any reflection, and it's something that uh, overthrew thought, uh, more than a thousand years of tradition in the church. So it was a, a uh, really quite a, uh, a radical step on his part to do something like that. On the, uh, well, the, and the, on the I was uh, going to say on the Good Friday. Uh, the good, uh, good Friday, he simply dropped um, uh, on his own uh, the uh, reference to the uh, perfidious Jews, and perfidious means unbelieving. Uh, he simply dropped it from the Good Friday prayer, uh, um, for the, from the introduction to it, and then uh, altered the uh, text of the... Uh, prayer as well as as uh, as he chanted it. So uh, and uh, this particular change he uh, then introduced in the uh, version of the missal that uh, he promulgated uh, in uh, 1960. 
it's now referred to as the 1962 missile because I guess that's when it was uh, actually published. So, uh, but this was overthrowing uh, something very ancient in the liturgy of the church as well because the um, general prayers on Good Friday uh, that are said for the Pope and the, the church and, and uh, for um, members of the hierarchy and for catechumens, etc., these are the most um, uh, ancient uh, oration texts in the Roman Missal. Uh, they go back to the time, uh, I guess we would say, when the church crawled out of the catech- uh, catacombs. They're that old. So to introduce a, a change uh, in the wording of such a phrase was really a, a radical uh, move, and it showed a, a contempt really for the liturgical tradition of the church on one hand, and on the other it showed his uh, uh, his ecumenism because he he uh, you know didn't want as a word to give offense was the truth. Yes, also there had been an attempt in the 1920s to do that very thing, and it was uh, it was refused. Uh, Cardinal Mary Del Val actually uh, was influential in that, but uh, the and Pius XII also uh, made explicit that the uh, that the word uh, perfidus in Latin does not mean perfidious in modern languages, but refers to unfaithful Jews, that is, Jews that have not uh, accepted the gospel. Mm-hmm. A- and that's important because you can't lump all Jews, that is, Jews who are uh, of you know Jewish race and origin, in infidelity. You have to pray for those who have not accepted the gospel. Because there are many Jews, like St. Paul, for example, uh, and the apostles, who are all Jews, who did accept the gospel, and there were, you know, a number of Jewish converts to the gospel. So the uh, you always have to make that distinction, and that's what, why that word is there, that the, the Jews who have not accepted the gospel, uh, that, that's, that's why it's there. So it doesn't make any sense to make this uh, theological, in the context of that, where you're praying for people who do not, uh, who have not embraced the gospel, it doesn't make any sense to pray for Jews. It would be like saying, let's pray for the Hungarians or let's pray for the Japanese. You know, it, it, it makes no sense uh, to merely talk about a people or a race without referring to their theological aspect. See, so, uh, it, it, so, that, that's, so that's why eventually it got changed into what it is now. You know, they're, uh, they're faithful to their testament and... Uh, you know, the, you know, some sort of vague thing about eventually uh, at the end of the world doing something. I don't know, but the the uh, it, it had to be changed because it made no sense. Well, Your Excellency and Father, we have a caller here who wants to ask you both the question, and, I, and it relates to the goal of modernism itself. So, uh, Hank, you're on the air right now with His Excellency Bishop Sanborn and Father Chicada. Thank Hello. you. Thank you. Hello. Hello, yes, your Excellency and Father, either, either one of you can answer it. But uh, the, the modernists—I mean, these the people—they're not—they weren't stupid people. Could not no. they see the statistics? I mean, the Catholic Church, this is just in America, was thriving it, it, between 1940 and 1960. For example, there were 20, 20 million people uh, added. There was over 40 million Catholics. Uh, the priests, the nuns, every statistic was just burgeoning. I don't know what the numbers were worldwide, but in America, 
the church was, it could, I think it was the best time ever. So what is their goal? I mean, do they expect 20 more people, in, uh, 20 million more Catholics to come in by what they're doing? I, I, I don't understand. What, what, what do they expect the church to be after they, after they gain control of it? Uh, and whatever it was, obviously it did, it's not working. Uh, the, the, the modernist is a heretic. Right? That's the first thing to understand about the modernist. And heretics are full of pride. That's why they're heretics. And they uh, detest the old church. They detest the, the historical Catholic church. They think it, it, they are effectively Protestants. They are liberals. Uh, and instead of having the uh, decency to just leave the church and found your own religion, as the Dollingerites did after Vatican I, uh, they were liberals who, who were disgusted with Vatican I, uh, they decided that uh, it would be wonder- wouldn't it be wonderful to change the church into a modernist institution? And... And uh, you know we would do such a service to humanity. Don't forget that these people have no no faith, no real religion. It's it's all just humanity and humanism. And any kind of religion that they profess is it's just a coating on this real religion underneath, which is one of humanism. And so they they have this idea of of enlisting the all the power and glory of the church in this modernist. Uh, campaign and this can be seen in their intentions from the early 19th century uh, to get a, a pope after their own ideas and uh, so that that is, you know the, that what they would feel is a horror is to continue the success of the Catholic Church that it enjoyed under Pius XII uh, and uh, under the previous popes that would be a horror to them because that means that Catholics would be like medieval monsters. See, they want modernists. Uh, however, they are realizing that their modernist program is a big flop. Uh, Europe is a complete wasteland of Catholics. I mean, there's just nobody left in those churches uh, except, you know, a few old people. Uh, they, they, it's just a wasteland uh, of, of any religion at all. And North America is is following suit very quickly. They're, all of their numbers are down. Bergoglio did not make any effect in Latin America. That was a recent poll that uh, the numbers are, are way down, per, uh, almost 1% per year since 1995 of people who call themselves Catholic uh, in Latin America, which was, you know, they look to Latin America as their big stronghold now. You know the 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 northern parts are already gone, so we'll look at Latin America. Well, that's starting to go very quickly, uh, and uh, but that really doesn't deter them. They are so prideful that they they just have this this confidence that things will will work out and that we'll have this wonderful institution that is completely modernized and people will love it. Uh, so to address it, it, the issue of. Um, uh, the statistics and the change there, uh, they will never admit that there's, uh, the modernists will never admit that there's a cause-effect relationship between what they did to the church at Vatican II and the plummeting church attendance and statistics. Uh, instead of uh, looking, uh, you have a religious crisis, 
and looking around, well, maybe there's a religious cause. Maybe there's a, there's a problem in, in uh, the religion that you've preached since then. Instead of doing that, they give a sociological explanation to say that, well, uh, this is because of different changes in society and modern communications uh, and the general liberalization of the, the uh, hippies generation, hippie generation in the 60s, etc., that, that this affected the church. Uh, so uh, they'll blame anything but Vatican II. Hmm. But in fact, um, uh, that is tied in with what His Excellency said about uh, the pride, that they've They've blinded, uh, they've blinded themselves to the, or they don't want to talk about uh, the cause-effect uh, relationship because of what that would mean to their program. Don't give me a fact. My mind's already made up. Is that, is that what they... Uh, <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, it's, right. it's like their baby. This is the baby that wow. they have been uh, carrying for centuries, essentially. The, wow. This baby of Vatican II, and they can't admit that the, that the thing is suffocating. And uh, the also, you see, Ratzinger understood that things were bad for Vatican II, and his approach was, well, let's try to let the traditionalists in and give them some concessions, because the traditionalists are the ones with the vocations and who have the most vibrant uh, orders. And, and I'm not only referring to traditionalists like us, but the... Uh, anybody that's conservative in the Novus Ordo, any of those nuns, convents, or, or uh, that has the slightest bit of conservatism, they are attracting people. Yes, the ones yes. that are all liberalized and radicalized, I mean, they're all in their 90s. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but they, they are old people and, and soon will die out. And uh, the, uh, so that was his idea. So, but obviously that irritated a lot of people. And now Bergoglio's idea is just the opposite, that if you, you know, put in a, a big dose of radicalism and, and really put through Vatican II the way it was supposed to be done, uh, you'll see that people will catch on and like it. And wow. so far, <laughs> it hasn't <Yeah>. worked. <laughs> Down the tube. And, well, Hank, uh, we, we appreciate your call. We've got to well, thank, got you to move on. thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Father. Mm-hmm. Great. Yes. Um, for those of you who are just joining us, we are in the uh, final uh, half hour, uh, actually about, about 25 minutes left in Francis Watch Episode 5 on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, co-hosting with Justin Soder today. Um, and our guests, as always, are His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, uh, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and uh, Father Anthony Chicada, Associate Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Um, Your Excellency and Father, I want to pivot, and I should say, for anyone calling in, our phone lines are now closed. We've got quite a few people in the queue right now, so if you uh, were thinking about calling in, I'm sorry. Um, if you'd like, you can always uh, write questions. We'll, we'll give a, an email address at the end of the show where you can write questions and get answers offline, but as far as today's show, um, phone lines are now closed. Um, Your Excellency and Father, I want to pivot to canonizations because we've been talking about this character all day today, John the 23rd, and now we need to talk about the fact that he's, he's not a saint, he's an eight. And, and the reason that that's... And there's a bigger problem with this. There's the, the recognize and resist movement. I want to I lead this, this last segment process with two quotes. 
The first one is the idea that um, Roberto De Mattei put forth in an interview with John Venari that all canonizations are, are an affirmation of heroic virtue. They are no guarantee that someone is in heaven. And the second is a quote from De Servor, Ser, Servorum De Beatificatione Beatorum Canonizatione, which is, who dares to assert that the Roman pontiff has erred in this or that canonization, or that this or that saint canonized by him should not be honored with the cult of Dulia, we call, if not heretical, nevertheless tem- temerarious, bringing scandal upon the entire church, injurious to saints, savoring heretics who deny the authority of the church in the canonization of saints, savoring of heresy, inasmuch as paving the road for infidels to mocking the faithful, asserting an erroneous proposition, and worthy of the gravest punishment, just as also think those who teach that it is not de fide that the Pope is infallible in the canonization of saints, or that it is not de fide that this or that canonized is a saint. Um, and obviously that's a translation, but you can imagine that in Bishop Sanborn's best preaching voice with a periodic <laughs> taps on the pulpit uh, to, to uh, punctuate certain of these uh, sentences, that delivery would have been better. But uh, I'll hand it over to you, Your Excellency. <laughs> yes, the, the reason why the uh, Church holds the, the canonization of saints to be de fide is because uh, the Church cannot... Uh, propose to the faithful someone to pray to or put in her liturgy and on her altars someone that is honored by the sacred liturgy who could be, even could be, a damned soul in hell. So it pertains to the church's general infallibility in matters that concern her mission, which is the sanctification of souls. I mean, imagine if, you know, we found out that, uh, you know, St. Pius V was actually a thief and that, that he was arrested for, for various things and, you know, we can presume that he's in hell after all the, you know, the, it, it is contrary to the very nature and purpose and function of the Church. Pope Leo XIII said the greatest of all of the characteristics of the Church is her holiness. And that would be contrary to the holiness of the church to hold up a damned soul as, as someone that should be venerated and that should be on our altars. So it makes all the sense in the world. And to to even entertain the possibility that the church could err in this is exactly what Benedict XIV said. I mean, I couldn't say it any better than Benedict XIV. And by the way, he should not be confused with the other Benedicts we've talked about. Benedict XIV uh, was a pope in the 1750s, and he was the one that devised the, uh, the system of canonizing saints that has been used since that time. He's uh, an expert on it. So uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, that's the reason for it. So the, I mean, it touches on the very nature of the church itself uh, to, to deny infallibility. Also, it should be pointed out that uh, uh, Mr. B, Bergoglio, used the traditional formula for the promulgation of this canonization, for the actual words. Uh, I can read them to you. For the honor of the Blessed Trinity, the exaltation of the Catholic faith, and the increase of the Christian life, 
by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and of our of the holy apostles Peter and Paul and our own, after due deliberation and frequent prayer for divine assistance and having sought the counsel of many of our brother bishops, we declare and define blessed John the Twenty-Third and John Paul II uh, to be saints and we enroll them among the saints decreeing that they are to be venerated as such by the whole church in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That is the traditional formula. If you look at uh, the canonization of, Pi- of Pius XII of um, a few saints, among them St. Joseph Cafaso, it, it is, if it isn't exactly the same, it is 99% the same. Uh, so he is uh, citing all of his supposed pontifical authority. That's the definition. Uh, that's uh, after do uh, <clears throat> we define we declare and define you can't get more explicit words from the Roman pontiff uh, for a definition so you have to revolt against the Roman pontiff in order to reject these saints and, and be everything as Benedict XIV said if it isn't heresy it's all of these other things well, Father, um, if I can jump in here and ask a question for you, um, this mm-hmm. is—I'm sure you, you pay very close attention to the internet and uh, the internet and the forums and uh, all these uh, you know, articles and commentary and things like that. I'm sure you've seen what I'm about to talk about, and that is that mm-hmm. you know the the yeah the recognize and resist crowd wants to get out of the set of the contest conclusion here, okay? And that is what they'll do is they'll make up lies about canonization. You have a lot of private individual laymen who are making all kinds of outlandish statements to twist this pretzel, you know, in a way that they can, that, that somehow it gets them out of the Sedefikantas conclusion. And you know, I've heard, you know, we did a show um, actually on the day of the canonizations and had a caller call in saying, well, you know, from my SSPX pulpit, I heard them saying that, that you know that these these canonizations are not valid because there's a defect in intention. You know, and you know, Archbishop Lefebvre said that you know these popes don't, you know, they don't intend to bind anything anymore, and so therefore, you know, we don't have to believe in these canonizations, and that they are somehow to be optional. So I would like you to comment on this this idea that this is really uh, sort of you know the trap door to get out of the set of a conscious conclusion. Well, I mean, um, who's supposed to be in charge of the church anyway? Uh, you know, to fi- uh, figure out the Pope's intention. Uh, it, it, uh, something like that contradicts uh, all of the uh, principles that, um, you know, have been enunciated in, in uh, Catholic theology about the canonization of saints. Uh, no theologian would defend that position. It's against explicitly what you uh, heard, the, the, the passage from uh, Benedict the uh, 14th. And and um, uh, it is it, it reflects this this uh, uh, desperation, but it also reflects the larger problem, which we've been pointing out for years. It's it's um, uh, the the uh, question is it's an, uh, the argument is is uh, in essence where is the church, you know, and 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 how do we explain this contradiction between. Uh, what we see in front of our eyes in the uh, deeds of the post-conciliar church and those who supposedly have uh, authority, and what we know as uh, as Catholics. So it's what's what's driving it from the point of view of the recognize and and, and resist crowd is uh, they don't want to acknowledge the logical conclusion. Uh, 
they know that um, John Paul II was a modernist. And they know that he was uh, a terrible person, that he did not have any, uh, uh, certainly did not have a life of sanctity. And those who have studied the question certainly know that the same is true with uh, John the Twenty-Third. So to get out of it, they have to find a way to elide a, a principle in Catholic theology that is, is uh, very clear to say that, well, in effect, the Pope could make an error. But there's absolutely no support uh, for that. And in fact, the uh, very ideas is uh, condemned. Uh, when, if you just turn their proposition around, in effect, they are uh, proposing the idea that, yes, uh, okay, a church could indeed uh, uh, solemnly propose to the faithful for veneration and imitation someone who is actually depraved and someone who is in hell. That's the proposition that you have to defend, and also that the the church could uh, make a mistake, as it were, could err in doing this with a formula of the, the sort that Bishop Sanborn read, which is so clear. Of, uh, you know, we we de, uh, uh, declare and define. So it it um, to maintain that position, you have to overthrow absolutely everything. And, and uh, everything, the, the pronouncements of the church then become uh, all up for grabs, if you can do that. Now, I'd like to add to that that these recognize and resist people have always said over the years, well, if the Pope ever defined something that was contrary to faith, then we would be sativacantists. Sure, then they sure. would be right. And we, you know, now, you know, we declare and define, and they go running into more absurdity and insanity uh, in their position in order to justify the, the rejection of the so-called saints. Um, and uh, so I think, uh, you know, I, I think they're falling apart uh, in their, uh, it is so contrary to reason uh, to, um uh, to uh, recognize, uh, rather to, to call into doubt, and so contrary to all the principles of, of sacred theology and contrary to this, this clear definition on the part of Bergoglio, uh, that uh, it, it, that will not last. I think that you'll see uh, splits among them where some of them say saint and others do not. I mean, it's, it's sort of going to classify you among them whether you put the word saint in front of JP2 or not. A theological classification. You know, I, there was a uh, I was recently in contact with a, a Novus Ordo priest, and I was uh, I was talking about uh, the canonizations, and I said, "What a joke!" And he said, "Yes, a long time ago they abandoned the faith. Now they've abandoned reason." Well. Mm. <laughs> and then I like Father Disposito's tweet: "Fake saints." For a fake religion. Well, <laughs> that was well I tell one. you, the the, the the Twitter skills of our traditional clergy are, are really off the charts. It's appreciated. Uh, with that, I'm going to introduce our last caller of the night, uh, Joseph in Virginia. Um, on a topic we haven't really talked about tonight, sort of saving it for the end because it's 
I suppose you could say in some way it's integral to everything we've talked about, but in other ways it's, it's just sort of the icing on the cake, and that's the issue of, of John the Twenty Third being a Mason. And Joseph, you're on the air. If you want to ask your question, please go ahead. Hi, thank you for your time. Uh, I'll just kind of cut to the chase here. Uh, I am actually uh, was raised in the Nova Sordo, age 25. Uh, went actually to the University of Dallas, uh, one of the last, uh, quote, conservative, quote, Catholic universities left in the United States. I saw for myself and just about lo- nearly lost my faith having gone there, realizing how compromised they were in terms of doctrine, giving themselves over to the Vatican II sect and leading me back ultimately to the traditional Catholic faith and embracing the set of Acantus position. Uh, much of my own research in the time since I graduated there has revolved around three primary sources. One would be the Alta Vendita uh, Masonic Blueprint for the Subversion of the Catholic Church, combined with uh, an English translation of Nikita Roncalli, Counter Life of a Pope. Third, and more recently, I've come across this latest edition of the Devil's Final Battle, Our Lady's Victory Edition by, quote, Father Paul Kramer. And I guess my question for you, for the both of you, is in terms of reaching out to the Nova Sordo crowd, many of whom have already turned their backs on me for having dared to raise even the slightest hint of being a set of a cantist, if you will, but more importantly, a traditional Roman Catholic, which is what I insist on. In terms of evangelizing and reaching out to those souls who are truly lost, as I once was, how would you recommend, um, as far as getting the point across to them, that if this is indeed the great apostasy foretold in the third secret of Fatima by Our Lady of Fatima, what, what would you say is the key to unlocking minds and hearts in this whole, if this is indeed the last spiritual battle of our time? Uh, well, the, the the first thing is that they have to have the Catholic faith. They have to believe the Catholic faith. And that is not true of most of the people in the Novus Ordo, That's first of all. Uh, only 4% of the Novus Ordo find Bergoglio unacceptable. They, they make objection in a recent poll. 4%. Okay? So you're dealing with 4% of the people that are in those churches or associated with those churches. Uh the second thing is they have to realize that there is something wrong. Uh, they, 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 you're, you have to be able to point out to them that continuity with the past is necessary. A lot of them don't even understand that. And then you have to show that there is not continuity in doctrine, discipline, and essential disciplines, uh, essential uh, right. worship and disciplines. That's the task. I mean, that's the apologetical task uh, the, uh, of converting someone. But you will find that most of those people don't even have the faith, and most of those people love and enjoy what's going on. They think sure. it's really great. You know, so you're, you're really uh, limited. Uh, most people have apostatized already. Uh, I would say that uh, uh, I would make essentially the same point as His Excellency did, that first you have to get people to the point where they realize that there is actually, there is in fact a real crisis here uh, that's going on, and um, uh, to get them then to look for uh, the causes. But there are um, uh, fewer and fewer people who uh, I think actually realize that uh, in uh, the modern church they they might see the numbers go down, but in terms of uh, actually assigning causes to it um, there 
uh, unwilling to do that, there's uh, there's a block because many of them do, in fact, like uh, uh, they think that that many of the aspects of the changes, if not uh, nearly all, are just great. So it's it's quite a task. I mean, you have to realize we're getting pretty hardcore. We're getting uh, uh, approval effectively in the pastoral order of uh, same-sex relations, and uh, we're getting approval of adultery. Uh, Outrageous things are going on. If you don't have a reaction to that as a Roman Catholic, as someone with a Catholic faith, you're hopeless. You've already lost the faith. The, the the faith would would just revolt against such things and find them absolutely unacceptable and disgusting. And if that is not present in a person, it's, you, you could talk until you're blue in the face. You're, you're not going to convince them. They they like the new religion. Well, Joseph, thank you for your phone call. We have to thank uh, you. we have to enclose it out here and. Um, you have our have our concluding thoughts. So, uh, your Excellency and Father, I, I just want to kind of put a period here at the end of this this, this sentence um, on the recognizer's position. And you know, we get a lot of emails uh, from people who are, um, you know, deeply troubled by the you know by the canonization. And you know, I think many people are starting to read and think and whatnot. So, look, let me put it to you this way. Um, if you could have five minutes alone with somebody who is grappling with this and, and is having a very difficult time trying to sort things out, what is it you would say to them? And Your Excellency, I'll start with you. <laughs> ah, five minutes, my goodness. Uh, I would uh, uh, I, I would do exactly what I just said, is that, that I would explain to him that Catholic faith demands continuity, that it is, cannot be Catholic it cannot fit into the definitions of a revealed religion unless there is absolute continuity of doctrine, discipline, and worship with the past. Point number one. But there is not continuity in Vatican II. Conclusion. This cannot be Catholic. And then bring out all of the other uh, things that flow from that. Uh, that, that would be the, the uh, path that I would take. Uh, but first, I would, you know, bring up certain things. I mean, do you find this objectionable that that uh, you know we uh, that same-sex uh, marriages and same-sex relationships and all are being approved? Do you find that objectionable? Is there something wrong with that in your mind, or that that people who live in adultery can go to communion? Is that okay with you? I mean, this is really hard stuff. This is abandonment of the natural law. I mean, this is not whether we're going to dialogue at mass or whether there's balloons. I mean, this is really, really getting down to it. And you know, so I, I would look for reactions like that and, and reactions where, you know, yes, there's something wrong. I realize there's something wrong, deeply wrong. Otherwise, uh, it's a waste of time. I would say that in terms of um, five minutes with someone on, who is maybe currently in the recognize and resist camp, um, I mean, uh, the the point always to make there is that, look, you know that there's something wrong, and um, you can give a whole list of, of um, uh, things that John Twenty-Third has done, that JP2 uh, did, that were... Um, uh, that look like the official actions of someone possessing authority in the church. But the principle always has to come back to this, that the church can't give you error, can't give you discontinuity 
in doctrine. And the church uh, can't give you evil. Uh, but you know that uh, this is, in fact, what those who appear to be in th- uh, authority in the uh, post-Vatican II churches have done. So it's either one or uh, the other, that uh, you, can't, um, uh, you can't maintain that these people still uh, possess their uh, authority if you want to say that all of these uh, things are, uh, uh, that they promulgated are erroneous and evil. They, one excludes the other. And it's, it's, it's simply a question of, of uh, applying logic to it. And uh, and that is indeed, I think, the the important uh, point to make with them. All right. Well, well your as, as, we ex- could, as oh, expected, oh. His Excellency and Father, you know, small-minded and Pelagian, relying on syllogisms and principles of non-contradiction, ideologies, <laughs> ideologies, <laughs> ideologies, <laughs> small-minded ideologies. Yeah. Well, when it gets toward nine o'clock, I'm starting to feel like a little mummy. I think that was one of the other. <laughs> Uh, uh, <laughs> other insults. <laughs> so well, well, your excellency and the father, thanks for your time this evening. Uh, you know, we could we can really carry on, you know, all night about this, but we have to go ahead and uh, you know close the show out here. But before we do, um, father, would you want to tell us what's going on over at SGG Resources? Well, um, on uh, on the fund appeal front, uh, we're doing an appeal for help for our priest in uh, the Ukraine. There's an Eastern Rite priest in the Ukraine, actually in the eastern part of the Ukraine, um, in a city very near the Russian border, and there's a great deal of turmoil there. And (coughs) as a result of that, he may have to move because of the civil turmoil. So we've been doing a little fund appeal for that. Uh, As well, we have a... um, uh, on my uh, blog, Quidlibet, there's an article on uh, Bergoglio, what I think should be the, the shift now for Sadie Vacantis in terms of the, the argument for uh, Bergoglio. And also, if you are uh, interested in um, musical things, in church music, I have on the Wiki Choral site, I have my own page on Wiki Choral. Uh, where I have uh, put up about uh, 15 uh, editions of, of uh, masses and, and uh, motets that uh, I've worked on. And you might want to pass that information along to your choir directors, because uh, some of it, uh, the music, I think, is, is quite practical. Well, and also, I'd like to alert listeners, they can go uh, to uh, www.mostholytrinityseminary.org, and you can read plenty of back articles from Bishop Sanborn's newsletter, which are just chock full of information. You can hear sermons, and you can always make a donation to the seminary. So, Your Excellency and Father, thank you so very much for joining us tonight, and we look forward to next month's show. Thanks thank very you. much. Bye now. Take care. God bless. Good night. And we'd like to remind our listeners, too, um, to... Please check out our sponsor's website, Novus Ordo Watch. Novus Ordo Watch provides us a tremendous amount of research and support, both financial and material, in bringing this show to you. So uh, their website is www.novusordowatch.org. And if you're so inclined, you can keep up to date with all the very latest happenings from the modernist Vatican and you know, Bergoglio's latest buffoonery. Our next show coming up is uh, Root of the Rot with Stephen Heiner and Bishop Dolan. Um, that will be on Friday. And... Uh, 
If you have any questions for us or for our show guests, you can always reach out to us at FrancisWatch at TrueRestoration.org. That's FrancisWatch at TrueRestoration.org. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found the show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a Mass, saying a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. If you have any questions or comments, we'd, or you'd like to reproduce our copyrighted work on your channel in some format, we'd love to hear from you. You can, uh, you can mail us at mail at truerestoration.org for that information. So for the restoration, I am Justin Soder, having been joined by Stephen Heiner. May God bless you.